If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to open to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 21. We'll be continuing our study of what is frequently called the Olivet Discourse. This is some of the same topics Pastor Daniel would have covered with the uh, counselors at Apennus. And this week we'll get into the third of four parts getting through this text. Jesus predicts the end. This week a focus on the coming the Son of Man, the return of Christ. But I'd like to begin by reading um, the larger text in its entirety so you can get a flow of the movement from 21.5 through the end of the chapter. So read with me. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence. There'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, beforehand, how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the earth. The power of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because... Your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf and you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near, so also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on a mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Lord God, as we continue to study this passage, it is filled with awesome and terrible things. And we, in our comfortable lives, um, I think, struggle to grapple with reality of who you are and what you have said will come. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We, we want to escape your wrath and judgment. We want to stand before your son, and we want to eagerly await your coming redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask you to consider a question what is the worst possible news any person can hear? What is the worst possible news anyone can hear? Just imagine the, the, the options. Maybe the news is it's cancer. Maybe the news is she's left me. Or he's left me. Maybe the news is the child has died. Maybe it's bigger in scope. You know, the United States has gone to war with North Korea. Is that the worst possible news you could think of? Our, our text today revolves around what I think is, if you think carefully and critically, the worst news in the world for man. And that is this. I, I believe the worst news, the worst truth, the most terrifying reality is that God is good. Probably shocking to you to consider that. How, how could it be that God is good is terrible news? Well, the reality is because we are not. In our text this morning, we see the destruction of Jerusalem, terror that comes upon the earth, all because God is good and man is not. If you've ever suffered injustice and wrong, you know that wrong demands righting. That crime deserves punishment. And Jesus foretells God's coming judgment and wrath and vengeance. These are the words in the text that Jesus is using. All because God is good and holy and just and man is not. The greatest threat facing man is not sickness, is not war, is not disease, it is not the devil, it is God himself. And all of us will either experience God's wrath and his judgment, or we will be among those, in verse 36, to stand before the Son of Man. Amazingly, with all of the fear and all of the terror and all of the vengeance, our text ends with our Lord offering encouragement. You see, the truth of God's goodness, if you understand his goodness specifically in Jesus Christ, is good news. And while the nations are in terror and dread, what does Jesus say in verse 28? Now these things begin to take place. Straighten up, raise your heads, 
because your redemption is drawing near. There's two very different responses to the goodness, the holiness, the justice of God. Terror, dread, or joy and courage. And we're going to see that. This text finally has Jesus answering the direct question given to him in verse 6 and 7. When will these things be? What will be the sign? If you remember, Jesus is in the temple. In Luke's gospel, he has placed us in the week before Jesus' arrest and imprisonment, crucifixion, and resurrection. This is the week before the passion. This is days before he will hang on the cross. And where some of the gospels focus on all the different things he did in that week, Luke just wants us to see him doing what he typically did. We're given it as programmatic. He's in the temple. He's teaching the people. There are six encounters with the leaders in the temple, six clashes, Jesus triumphant in all six, and now he announces the end. Jesus predicts the end, and we saw him predict the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem Last week, we saw him predict the persecutions and the trials that would come upon his people. But really, finally, this week, we look at those events that are precursors to his coming. You see the focus on a coming judgment. In verse 20, something is drawing near, coming near. We see it again. At the end, redemption is drawing near. And so ironically, this text has wrath, desolation, and judgment drawing near for some, and for others, a redemption that draws near. We're going to look at it in three points. First, wrath comes upon Jerusalem. Wrath comes upon Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance. To fulfill all that is written, alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So now we're jumping ahead. We've seen already the things that happened before, the things that must come first. Now we're jumping forward. But when you see, and Jesus doesn't necessarily expect the people he's talking to to live to see this. This is a sort of stereotypical you. To the one who sees this, what is it they're seeing? The siege of Jerusalem, when you see Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, one of the things that makes this tricky is that in 70 AD, Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem with armies, tore it down, tore the temple apart stone by stone. Yet the events spoken of here can by no means be seen as having been fulfilled in 70 AD. Notice the language here, that all of Scripture might be fulfilled. These are the days of vengeance 70 AD may have kicked things off, may have been a precursor, but the final fulfillment of this is is yet future. And Jesus links in this passage with numerous Old Testament passages. In fact, we're going to be jumping around the Old Testament more than we usually do because we've got to understand what he's linking these things to. Because he begins by saying, here's the event 
which is the first precursor to his return. And it's Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And he says, okay, when you see that, know that its desolation has drawn near. Well, what's its desolation? Keep your finger here and turn back to Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9, the Lord gives Daniel a sort of prophetic calendar of what to expect for Israel after the decreed return from captivity. Its desolation is drawn near. And we read about the 70 weeks, 77s, 445 BC, they return. 70 weeks, verse 24, decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was under Cyrus, we're told, in Nehemiah, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one or a Messiah or a Christ shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with, for many weeks. For half a week he shall put an end to the sacrifices. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I think that's what Jesus is referencing, this, this promised text. Jerusalem we made desolate by a desolator. And so he says, know when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. So Jesus is linking this with those events. And he speaks, giving counsel to those who are there. Now notice he doesn't assume his disciples will be experiencing this. There's a difference in the voice. When you see, you, second person, but look at 21, then let those, third person, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's telling his disciples what anyone, those people living in that time and in that place and in that day, should do. And basically, run, flee, get out of there. They are to flee from the city. This is, again, following a pattern. Jerusalem has regularly been besieged and destroyed and torn down. Listen to what Jeremiah says about Nebuchadnezzar as he comes to the people. Very similar language. Jeremiah 21, 8 through 10. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. You shall burn it with fire. A little later in Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance the repayment he is rendering to her. So there's a very brief precursor 
the the Jerusalem is surrounded. And for anyone living in that time and in that place, get out. He goes from pronouncing its desolation to give further description of what this event is. This is a climactic event. By the way, I think it's linked to what came before. Um, We're told next that these are the days, your blank here, is a vengeance. Days of vengeance. Vengeance for what? I think, at least in the immediate context, go back to verse, um, I'll take you before synagogues. Yeah, verse 12. But before all this, they'll lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. Jerusalem and Israel will vigorously participate in the persecution, murder, of the saints. And so Jerusalem has participated in warring against God and his people, and now wrath comes upon them. And I want to just pause and make one other point. All of these judgments, all of God's judgment, all of God's warnings of judgments are invitations to repentance. They're always in repent, in invitations to repentance. You ever stop and think when Jonah gets sent to Nineveh and he tells the people just 30 days and Nineveh will be overthrown? And yet that pagan king in Nineveh reasoned, why would God warn us of wrath if not perchance to give us a chance to repent and to turn? And so even these predictions are calls and warnings for people to turn. And Jesus earlier in in Luke's gospel, in Luke 13, was told about a, a tragedy, a tower that fell. And the people were wondering, why did this bad thing happen to them? And when calamity happens in your life, Jesus' response is, these people are not worse sinners than all others. I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish as well. So you may not be alive to see this event happening, but this this wrath, which will go from Jerusalem to the nations, it gets picked up in the nations in verse 25, it gets broadened out, judgment on the whole earth is coming but every time God warns us of judgment, it's an invitation to turn, to trust his son. Believe me, you want to be part of the group who view the return of the Lord as deliverance, not as a cause for terror. And the, and the only way to be part of that group is to be a follower of Christ, someone who's put your faith, your trust in him. We sang about it this morning. Only in Christ is there righteousness. Only in him is there salvation. And so we're reading the terrible fate of the unbelieving world, and yet in stark contrast that at the end of our passage, people are taking courage. Redemption is drawing near, even as all the rest of the world quakes and fears. So these, we are told, are the days of vengeance, which again is another Old Testament reference. Listen to Hosea 9.7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spirit... The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. And if you're stumbling over all this language of wrath, vengeance, and, and you're struggling with the notion of, of the loving God that you hear about, God is loving. And we're, we're told, and even these references to the Old Testament text remind us that God's judgment is always in response to man's sin. It is never capricious. It is never vindictive. It is never petty. It's always righteous. Remember, the worst news is God is good. He is holy. And so we are seeing here 
a holy God's response to persistent, ongoing rebellion and sin. This city, which was to be his seat where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, this city will be the center of the bloodshed and the persecution of first the Son of God and then the people of God. And in that light, we are to understand the the rightness. It's terrible. It's terrifying. Shouldn't put a smile on our face. But we should understand that God is patient. He is long-suffering with each and every one of us. But make no mistake, the God of the Bible is a righteous judge who will recompense iniquity and sin. And, And this terrible disaster foretold of the rest of the world is what each and every one of us is facing when we stand before God if we are not clothed in Christ. This will fulfill, he says, all that is written. And we don't have time to go back to Deuteronomy, but even as early as at Sinai, Moses made it clear, look, if you guys do not serve the Lord your God with faithfulness, if you do not respond to him in faith, he will wipe you out. He will drop these curses upon you. He will scatter you to the four winds. Turning your Bibles to um, Zechariah. And make sure you keep your finger here in Zechariah because we'll be back here one more time at least. Zechariah 14. Just if you've got Matthew, go like four or five pages to the left and you'll be in Zechariah 12 or 14. Um, See, this final cataclysmic siege of Jerusalem is predicted repeatedly in the Old Testament. Another reason why we know it can't be fulfilled in 70 A.D., And even though the the harm is being done by the pagans, the Gentiles, God says he is the one responsible for it. This is God's wrath and God's justice and God's judgment, even as he uses the the sword of the Gentiles. Zechariah 14, 1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Who's gathering them? God. The devil may think he's doing it. The city should be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, half the city should go into exile. We'll pause there. There's more hope after that, but that's the prediction. The the nations gather around Jerusalem, the walls broken down, the people killed, raped, and taken off into captivity, which leads then Jesus to pronounce woes for the distress and the wrath to come. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written, Alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. He's picking the most helpless and weak people. People who, they can't even run on their own. They're taking people with them. And so those people of all will be the most vulnerable to this judgment. It will result, point three, in death and calamity for the city. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. So make no mistake, Jesus is telling them, this, this may be an impressive building. The future of Jerusalem is going to get worse before it gets better. It'll be brought down low. And then probably to the Jewish here, the most difficult thing to hear, it will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be dominated by Gentiles. And there's some debate amongst commentators about when this time of the Gentiles began. 
Um, John MacArthur argues it happened at the captivity by Babylon. Even though Israel returned, they've always been under the thumb of a foreign power. They've always been dominated by the Gentiles, first Babylon, then the Medo-Persians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, then Rome, until finally Rome destroyed them. Others see it as starting in 70 AD. But regardless, this is the time and place we are in. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. Sometimes people talk about the church age. A biblical category might be the times of the Gentiles. And, and in one sense, it's good news for us as the gospel goes to Gentiles like you and me. I'm guessing most of you are Gentiles. I certainly am. Um, and so Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Um, and, and there's Psalms lamenting this. I mean, listen to Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heaven for food and flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There is no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. The holy city will suffer the indignity and shame of being trampled underfoot and even today, you know, there's, there's a mosque on the Temple Mount. There's, there's conflict and strife in Jerusalem. And this will continue until the end of the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Which, by the way, brings in a note of hope, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament. In other words, it indicates that this trampling will not be perpetual and endless. It will have an end date, right? Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And for Jews, knowing their Old Testament, that they're aware of the promises that Jerusalem will ultimately be restored. Jerusalem will ultimately be restored. Turn, turn to Ezekiel with me. Um, Ezekiel 36. And this is one of the two major Old New Covenant passages where God promises a new covenant and the, the, the blessings of it, most specifically here, a new heart. My son Zadok's always praying for, for a new heart for people. He's recently taken up to praying that God would give a new heart to everyone in the world. But that's exactly what we need, right? And we sang this morning, I can't do it myself. I can't make my spirit live. And in the new covenant, God says he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But I want to just start in probably what is familiar text and then just keep reading. Verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You know, pause when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit, spirit and water. This is the passage he's referencing. Sprinkle you with clean water. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Keep reading. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I'll be their God. That's, by the way, a very specific land that God gave to Israel's fathers. Now I'll deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I'll summon the grain and make it abundant. Now, we're describing here, I believe, the, the 
The kingdom that Jesus even references at the end of our passage. And I'll summon the grain, make it abundant. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. That you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. For thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being a desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. You see, Israel's going to be trodden underfoot. Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot. There'll be a scorn and a derision. But there will come a day, God says, where he will put his spirit in them. He will forgive and cleanse their iniquities. And in that day, he will also rebuild the land. Now, you can try to spiritualize this. I, I, the simple, plain reading makes plain sense. Seek no other sense, lest you yield. Nonsense is a good rule of interpretation. A plain sense makes common sense. Seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. Verse 36, then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. The Jerusalem's fate will be to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. But even that saying, until, indicates that's not the end. So Jesus here speaks of the coming wrath, judgment, vengeance, distress. These are his words for Jerusalem. But even though judgment, wrath, and distress is coming for Jerusalem, there's more coming for the rest of the world as well as we move on now to the dread that comes upon the nations. So first wrath comes upon Jerusalem, now dread comes upon the nations. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth, the stress of the nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're going to move quickly here. But here now we get to the, the signs predicted in the Old Testament, referenced repeatedly in the New Testament, cosmic signs, unmistakable signs, the, the sun being blotted out, the moon turning to blood, first referenced in Joel, um, not Pastor Joel, but the prophet Joel, although their, their antiquity is near. Okay, sorry. Um, listen to Joel 2, 30 to 32. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But just like I told you earlier, God's pronouncements of judgment are always his invitations to, to return. The sun shall return to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So even these apocalyptic events are invitations to call on God to be saved. This will result then in the absolute distress, terror, and foreboding. Um, so these cosmic events take place. The, the seas and the tides are apparently being messed with. When the response is perplexity, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming. Desolation of Jerusalem is near, but here something is coming, and the people are terrified. 
Again, I'll talk to, talk to people who are unbelievers and atheists, and they'll say they wish they could just have a cup of coffee with God. They wish they could just chat with him, have him sit down and answer some questions. That's not true. That's, that's not the way um, we are. T- turn to Revelation 6. Here we can sync up the events that Jesus is speaking about with the book of Revelation clearly. The cosmic signs are a pretty good place to sync things up because they're pretty clear, unmistakable, and non-repeating and so sometimes when you're reading the prophetic literature, it's hard. Is he this talking about this? But I'm, I'm pretty sure what Jesus just said links up with Revelation 6. And I want you to see the exact same result he depicts is there, except it's even more explicit. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell on the earth. So I'm pretty sure we're synced up with what Jesus is talking about. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So here, now, finally, the world has proof there's a God. It's as though God's peeking behind the curtain and says, Hi, here I am. How do they respond? Do they say, Finally, we know you exist. Wonderful. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. See, they get that the worst news you can hear is God is good. That's clicked for them now. And they're hiding in caves and they're saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? They know perfectly well there's a God and they're scared of him, but they do not love him. They do not serve him. And so they tremble at the news that God is good and righteous and just. Just as Jesus predicted in Luke 21. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are the unmistakable harbingers of his imminent return. And you may wonder, where's the rapture and all this? It's not in view. Jesus isn't dealing with that at all. He's dealing specifically with the future of Jerusalem, its fate, and the events that, that harbinge and predict his imminent return. And so turn back with me to Luke. Our final point. These, these terrible things come upon the world. Judgment is coming upon the world. Men will be terrified Wrath is coming upon Jerusalem. But there is some good news here. In stark contrast to that, we see that deliverance comes to Christ's disciples. Deliverance comes to Christ's disciples. And now we see plainly, clearly, the second coming of the Son of Man. And that title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite moniker for himself. Very few other authors call him that. Paul doesn't refer to him as the Son of Man. It's always Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus. And the disciples are calling him Lord and Master. But Jesus, when he speaks about himself, um, is his absolute favorite title. And it's a very clever title for Jesus to use in Jerusalem. Because the Son of Man is the title given to the prophet Ezekiel. And so for the Pharisees who are looking to pick him up for blasphemy, it's going to pass her over the head. It's not going to trigger any alarm bells. Oh, son of man, he's just claiming some sort of prophetic title. I'm sure they didn't like it, but nothing that's going to get him persecuted. However, go back to Daniel with me. 
Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, is not linking himself with Ezekiel. He is rather linking himself with Daniel. And Jesus will make this clear when he's arrested and when they interrogate him. And when the high priest understands, you haven't been meaning the Ezekiel son of man this whole time. When he gets what we're about to see, he rips his clothes, says, what further need is there? Kill him. Because this is a claim to deity. And so Jesus says in Luke, just keep your finger in Daniel 7, he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Daniel chapter 7, pick it up in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. He's got a pictured vision of heaven and the throne room. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels are burning fire, a stream of... He's just, he's depicting a purifying, devouring, intense, holy place. Thousands served him, a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. I jump down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there's your linking phrase. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, to this one like a son of man who came on the clouds, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so what Jesus has hinted at, what he has said, so that those with ears to hear might hear, those with eyes to see might see, he now says plainly, I am not Ezekiel, I am, I am Daniel 7, son of man. And I will come in the clouds, he says, with all my glory... And power. It's coming of the Son of Man. Two points here. I'm back in your notes and back in Luke. This coming will be seen. The nations will see him as he comes. We're going to sing in a few minutes, Behold our God. But the, the New Testament is clear on this point. This is what they're dreading. It's the sign of the Son of Man appearing. They see him coming. There's a few minutes warning, apparently, as he approaches and comes. In fact, in Acts 1.11, just after Jesus is ascended into heaven, what does the angel tell the disciples? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Where did Jesus ascend into heaven from? Mount of Olives. Let's pick back up, if you're with me, or you can just listen to Zechariah 14. Remember, we read the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and the city would be taken, plundered, houses Plundered, the women raped, half the city going into exile, but the rest of the people should not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet, whose feet? The Lord, all caps. His feet shall stand on Mount of Olives. Touchdown point on planet Earth, the returning Jesus is exactly where he ascended from, the Mount of Olives. 
and every eye will see. Listen to Revelation 1.7 speaking of this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. The nations will see him as he comes, and he will come in the fullness of his glory. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of pictures of Jesus in heaven. We, we have some idea of what Jesus looked like as a human. He was a man. He took on flesh. But he was humbled. And the humble Jesus of the Gospels is someone very comfortable. The last time we see Jesus in the Bible, he doesn't look like that anymore. You can go read the description in Revelation 1. It's terrifying. He has his glory now. He's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory. He will not be meek and mild. In fact, you want to see what this looks like. Turn, finally, it's the last place I ask you to turn to, to Revelation 19. Which again is why the implicit call is while pardon is offered, while peace can be had, while he stays his hand, while his judgment tarries, Make peace with the Lord. Call upon him and be saved. As when he returns, he will not return to pardon, but to judge. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That, by the way, references to Isaiah 63, but we don't have time to go there. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, linking with Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming to judge and make war because he is good, because he is righteous. And that is, And facing him in that context is the worst news and fate you can suffer. And yet amazingly, Jesus tells his disciples back in Luke 21. As you see, and there now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see, what is the worst news for the world? is good news for the Christian. So two, two things, very quickly. As these things begin to take place, the, these things, I believe, are the surrounding of Jerusalem, the cosmic signs, the moon being turned to blood, those clear, unmistakable things, these things, whoever's living in that time, whoever sees those things, the Christian isn't to flee, is to take courage. As these things begin, take Courage, what a stark contrast. The rest of the world sees these things take place. They hide in caves. They call on them to fall on them. 
And here, in stark contrast, are people lifting their heads, beginning to get excited, beginning to, he's almost here. Because when he comes, even though his revelation says he comes to judge and to make war, he is also coming to redeem his children. If I go, I will return again, and I will take you into myself. My father's house and many mansions, I will go again, I will return. For your redemption draws near. And and, and God's people suffering in this world, he has not forgotten. He has not ignored. He will come for them. And so while the rest of the world trembles in fear and foreboding and terror, the people of God take courage. Their redemption comes near. We talk about how Christ died in the past to save us. Your salvation is past, present, future. In the past, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross once for all, the just for the unjust, that you and I might be forgiven and reconciled with God. Jesus now is pleading and interceding on our behalf as our great high priest, sanctifying, saving us in that sense. Not saving us, forgiving our sins, but saving us, making us more like him. And he will come again to glorify and save us in that sense. And this is pictured here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I do. I'm just going to read a a final quote from John MacArthur as we prepare to sing our closing song. How extensive will this coming of the Son of God be? Every person who has ever lived will play a role in history's most dramatic event. Believers from the Old Testament and church eras and those martyred during the tribulation will participate with joy in the glory and bliss of heaven. They will return with Christ, that they will be those in that great throng with him. On the other hand, those alive who refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will face temporal death followed immediately by eternal hell. The urgent message to unbelievers then and now is seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, delaying a response to God's call to repentance, be saved, risk the missed opportunity and results in eternal tragedy. I trust that we are those who will not tremble at the Lord's coming, but will take courage and take heart. And so I'd ask you to stand with me as we sing, Behold Our God.